0: Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Uh, Seems like a long time ago, I started, actually, it was when I was wrapping up the three-week church-wide fast that I began a mini-series on prayer, what became a mini-series on prayer. Uh, Now, I wasn't here last week, and thank you. Many of you reached out to see how I was. I stayed home. I think Pastor Mike read the note that I had sent him. I really wasn't feeling terrible, but I sounded terrible. I was very obviously symptomatic, and we are still doing our best to encourage you. You know, We're a church that believes in healing. We're a church that believes in divine protection, but we're a church that walks in love. And wisdom, and we are encouraging you that if you are snotty and feverish, and anything that sounds gross and looks gross, uh, and uh, again, if you are obviously symptomatic, don't push, don't push that on somebody else who might not be walking on your at your level of faith. We'll just put it that way. Let's prefer one another and not put any uh, burden on one another that we don't have to. I maybe could have gotten away with it. I could have showed up. Hibernated in my office until it was time to come in here and preach and then been up here through the message again feeling fine but doing this The whole time and you but some people would say what's he doing here? So stayed home for your sake the week before I Which is when I had this message originally prepared for We had uh, you know the Holy Ghost just took us a different direction we had this wonderful time of praise and worship and repentance and uh, Ministry that was just wonderful and I'm not complaining about that but I say, yeah, that was uh, two weeks ago, that last week. And so here we are, finally, I get to preach this thing. And uh, it's, for now, uh, as far as I know, it's the last message in this series before we go a different direction. And there's a couple different directions that I am praying about, so I'm not going to tell you what we're talking about next week until I know. But the first message uh, in this series was we looked at how uh, Abraham... Interceded for the city of Sodom, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, on behalf of his nephew Lot. And then the week the next week we looked at two separate times that Moses interceded for Israel. Do you remember these things? In all three of those cases, God had pronounced judgment. In in Abraham's case, he had told him, Hey, look, we're on our way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because it's it's sin has this, this deafening outcry calling for judgment. Uh, and then Abraham says, wait a second, there, there might be righteous people in there and bargains with God to bring him down in an effort to spare the city. And then in Moses' case, both times, God says, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to destroy this people. I've watched them. I've watched them for all these years. They are a stiff-necked people. I'm just going to wipe them out. It'll be easier if I just kill all of them and start all over with you. And Moses wouldn't get out of the way. So if you're going to kill them, kill me. Uh, and then he would appeal to God's reputation. You can't do that. You're going to look like a failure in front of our enemies. You're going to look like a failure in front of your enemies, in front of the Egyptians. They're going to say you couldn't complete. And my whole point in sharing those stories was, and I maintain this, will always maintain this, uh, is that God told Abraham what he told him. He told Moses what he told him, specifically so that they would intercede. Right? If we are in covenant with God we have that kind of standing with God, that kind of pull with God, we can ask great things and receive them. The ingredient we need to look at more closely today is this. Uh, is that what, that's what we must be praying in agreement with God's will. You know, the, the judgment... If you read these passages, the, you know, the Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Moses interceding for Israel those two times, if you read them as a novice... Uh, and maybe without the whole counsel of Scripture, it sure kind of looks like he really was set, that his will, his heart's desire was to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and then Israel, at least twice, and that Abraham was able to change his mind. Moses was able to change his mind, calm him down, turn him from his will, and that doesn't really work with the God we know. The, the whole thing is... Uh, The judgment. Well, if his heart wasn't to destroy these cities or these people, then why say anything at all? Why? Why involve Moses? Why? Why involve Abraham? If if that really wasn't your heart, why say it was your heart? It's because this, these declarations, these pronouncements of impending judgment, were a, a manifestation of God's justice. God is perfectly just, and He cannot ignore the outcry of sin. He can't just pretend it doesn't exist. Sin has to be judged. It has to be punished. The only thing that could save those who were crying out for punishment was a covenant person, somebody who had a particular standing with God saying, I know their, ju- their sin cries out for this, but I'm asking you to do this for me because of our covenant arrangement. And that gives God the... Uh, to put it crassly, the excuse not to judge at this time. Okay? So again, we must be praying in agreement with the will of God because I believe it was God's will to spare, but the only way he could spare was if man prayed, if the right man, the right woman, prayed. Now, what's a little scary about that is if, to a lot of people, it shouldn't be scary to us, if you don't understand what covenant means or, what it, or how powerful it is, is that it's a big statement, and it's too much for some people to say that God has arranged things on purpose so that the prayers of man are a central part of the outworking of his will in his creation. Wesley put it this way, God does nothing but in response to prayer. Now that's a pretty broad statement, and he meant that uh, in a particular context, and that context was the work of the kingdom. I have cringed when I've heard preachers say, and I'm talking now about preachers in our camp who say things, who have taken this message, and I've been in this scene, I mean this particular strain of Christianity, uh, since I was, I don't know, 14? 14? And so I've heard a lot of different ministers and been through several different periods of time where certain truths were being emphasized. But I have heard preachers say, you don't need to be asking God, you need to be commanding God. You need to be ordering God. This is what he means. This is the power he gave. He stands before you ready to do anything you tell him to do. That's nonsense. Okay, that's that's. that's getting it backwards. Or, uh, this is a little bit milder, but it's still wrong, Uh, we should be ordering our angels around. Well, they're ministering servants, uh, and therefore, and a minister, uh, you know, is a servant, and so therefore, they're our servants, and they're our angels, so we should be, instead of saying, God, bring me this, we should, or uh, asking God for this, we should say, angels, go get this for me. Scripture clearly tells us that it is God who orders the angels around. We direct our prayers to nobody but God, and then God will direct the angels to do whatever he wants them to do in order to bring the answer into our lives. It's not that complicated. But people are looking for something a little more spectacular and exciting so they say, we can order angels around. Show me that. Show me that in the Bible. Anyway, uh, so that's on one extreme. But some would also suggest or even categorically declare that if you get right down to it, the only purely scriptural prayer is to say, Thy will be done. Lord, I'll be honest, this is what I want. But the only thing I can ask you for is whatever you want. And if it's not your will that I have this, then help me to accept it's not your will. Help me to accept that I'm going to live with this disease until I die. Help me to accept that I'm going to be poor till I die. That I'm never going to be reconciled in this relationship that I believed you had brought into my life, etc., etc. And that is a weak prayer. We we should know better than that, right? Uh, But they say... that if we could pray and actually change the way things are going to be. In other words, if it was going to be a certain way in my life, and then I prayed and it changes, that this somehow impugns the sovereignty of God. In other words, God's going to do whatever God's going to do, whether you pray or not. If your prayers make a difference, then God is not God. Now, as far as that goes, the argument makes sense. But that's just not what God says about the situation. There was a, uh, I attended a Christian Missionary Alliance church for about a year after I was at Canaan land and the, the man I've, I've talked about him in this congregation before, this pastor, precious people, word people. they love the Lord and CNMA as a, de, as a denomination have a high regard for the Word of God, at least to the point where they would never say the gifts of the Spirit are are. They, they aren't cessationists. They don't practice the gifts, that, or they didn't, this particular local body didn't. They don't embrace them, but they knew the word well enough to say, you can't say tongues aren't for today. We don't do them here, but, you know, if God wanted to do them, he sure could. But the overarching doctrine in every message that I heard, every prayer that I heard prayed was, thy will be done. I'll give you one example that I have probably shared before in a in a healing message, uh, where a couple from the church had a know, six- or seven-year-old daughter who'd been diagnosed with cancer, and they had felt in their heart that they were going to go visit some churches that preached a stronger word of healing. They, they weren't leaving the church. They were just going to take a road trip and visit some more uh, boldly charismatic churches just to expose themselves to different kinds of ministry. It was, there was probably a little bit of desperation there, but they also just wanted to see, all right, maybe something. And, and, and our pastor encouraged that. Yes, by all means, go see these. And while they were gone, the pastor had us stand in a circle around the inside of the sanctuary. It wasn't nearly as, as big as this sanctuary. And began to pray for this family. And he prayed for her healing. I'm, I was so happy to hear it wasn't, oh, we don't know what you're going to do to this little girl, Lord, but it was like, hey, uh, they, we love this girl. We want to see her healed, and we know that you, you are the God who said, "I'm the God that heals you." I'm like, yeah, right on. This sounds like Rama. Uh, we believe, and, and starts quoting scripture, and I'm like, yes, yes, this is this is as faith filled as anything I've heard here. And he preached, he prays. It wasn't a long, drawn out prayer, but it was a very good scriptural prayer. And then he says, "But Lord, if that's not Your will, if somehow, in ways that we don't understand," It's, it's, it's your will that she is not healed from this disease. Please help them accept this as your will. Help us all to accept this as your will. Even if we don't understand the why, this side of heaven. And I'm like, now I get it. I get it. That happens. We've had it happen here in our own little world, right? And I wish I could explain why we don't see more consistent manifestations of the healing that we believe in. But that prayer... That he wrapped that up with Just sort of let all the air Out of all the faith That he had filled the people with In the few minutes prior I'm like this is you could see people Nodding and yes, yes, yes And it's like oh yeah We still have to do what God wants Not what we want So where's the gap? So when I would talk to him And we had several conversations Over breakfast and coffee And things like that And I, and I put it this way In one of our early conversations, I said, uh, because he was very interested, knowing what kind of background that I had come from, word of faith. And uh, I said, I just, I said, I guess I would sum it up this way, Pastor. I believe there are certain prayers that God is obligated to answer. And you thought I'd said a much nastier word than obligated. The O word was like the worst thing you could say in that context. Obligated, And he, I mean, fist came down the table. God isn't obligated to do anything we ask him to do. God isn't obligated to do anything. He's God. He wouldn't be God if he were obligated. And I said, you gotta, you have to understand me. I'm not saying I can obligate God or that he is obligated to me. God has in his sovereignty as an expression of his sovereignty, voluntarily, on purpose, and very, very clearly obligated himself to answering certain prayers. He cannot deny himself. So every time we're looking at the subject of faith and prayer and believing for anything, we just have to ask ourselves this. Can God break a promise without violating his nature? No, he cannot. So it always boils down to this. What has God said? What has he promised? And that's what we base our prayers on. Again, I don't understand why we don't always see the things we know we ought to see, but we have to be secure in what we understand about God's word. That's all by way of introduction, all right? I want to look at two other instances uh, in Scripture today, but let's start in James. And again, this this kind of goes back to... um, I said that God, in his sovereignty, set it up this way. On purpose, he he decided to involve man in the great issues of the story of redemption. Puts a great responsibility on us. Could he have set this up differently so that he does everything unilaterally? I suppose he could have, but he didn't. He designed this to be a covenant, a partnership, and it goes back to that psalm. What is man that you take thought of him? Now, you can open your, your Bibles to James chapter 5. Because this is kind of, uh, I believe this is scripture that's, that launched this little series. It will begin in verse 13. James five thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, this is such a rich passage, uh, and I will probably return to it, again, depending on which direction I go after this week, but we'll unpack some other stuff in there, Uh, but things that we're not looking at this morning, like the connection between sin, uh, confession, forgiveness, and healing. Today, I just want to look at how many times he uses the word pray or prayer or prayed, because that's his main point, that prayer works. Prayer works wonders. And he brings up Elijah as an example to us. Now, Elijah was a power prophet, uh, as opposed to one of the preaching or writing prophets. Uh, He was a guy who walked the earth and did miracles. And uh, God did mighty signs and wonders through him. Elisha, his protege, did uh, twice as many miracles as he did. But Elijah is the one that has emerged, uh, especially in Hebrew culture, as the very definition of a mighty man of God. And James here says that he was a man like us. He wasn't born with superpowers. There was nothing different about Elijah's nature. His only superpower, I guess, was that he prayed. But what I find interesting is that when I read the account that James refers to, what's he talk about? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and it did rain. When we look at this, uh, I don't see Elijah praying. At least not in the first part. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. 1 Kings 17:1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab was the king in Israel, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, maybe you want to go back a few verses and get some background on Elijah, but guess what? It's not there. This is, where, this is his first appearance. He just shows up, and I didn't see anything here that looked like what you and I might define as prayer. He shows up and makes this bold, dec- bold declaration to the king. Now, fast forward, 1 Kings 18, uh, beginning in verse 41. And this is after the showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. He says, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, "There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea." So he said, "Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you." Now, as it happened in the meantime, that, now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now. In this scene, we have something that at least looks like prayer. Here's Elijah, bowed to the ground, or sitting there with his head between his knees, and then he looks up, says his servant, go check, go check for rain. Comes back, nothing, go check again. Seven times we see it. Uh, And I think it's safe to assume he's praying, he's listening for the word of God, he's praying for rain, but it doesn't say it, it doesn't record the prayer. All that's recorded is a declaration of the rain before it happened. We have a declaration that it's not going to rain, and it didn't rain. Now we have a declaration, here comes the rain, when all that had been seen at that point was a cloud the size of a man's hand. Go tell Ahab it's going to flood if you don't get out of here. Or you're going to get trapped in this rain if you don't get moving now. And James said, he prayed. And both of these things happened. Now, James was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we know Elijah did pray. Uh, But, you know, the rain stopped and started at his word. Hang on to that for a second. Before I make a commentary on it, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to set this up for you quickly because it's an interesting and important story on several levels. When the children of Israel began to inhabit the land, this is under Joshua's leadership. Moses has died, uh, and Joshua is now going to take the children of Israel after 40 years into the land of promise. And they're going to have to take these uh, take the land city by city. And, of course, he fit the Battle of Jericho first and then Ai, and things got a little messed up there. But uh, they are taking the the land little by little, and uh, word had quickly spread. If you remember, one of the most fascinating details to me as they uh, begin to move into this land is how much fear there was in the land of the people of Israel, meaning they saw them coming a long way off. Word of them coming had been coming for years. They lived in dread of this moment. And so when when, uh, Israel finally crossed into the land of promise and began taking these cities, there was area-wide panic. And when it talks about these kings, these were little city-states. They were armed, fortified cities that each had their own little kingdom, and they would make treaties with one another. But uh, here in the early days of this, these neighboring city-states are just, oh, no, they're, they're really shaking their boots because they know their time's coming. Well, one of these cities, Gibeon, which was a pretty big one. It was bigger than, uh, bigger than AI, for sure. They came up with this ingenious plan, and it's worth reading in detail, but the short version is uh, they sent... Um, some emissaries to meet with Joshua and the leaders of Israel. But what they did was they put on a bunch of old, dirty, they, they beat up these clothes to make it look like they'd been riding for months. And they filled their bags, their provision bags, with moldy bread so that everything, made, everything was made to look like they had crossed from a long way away. And this is what they did. They came to, to, to the leaders of Israel and said, hey, We heard these stories about you from our home country, which is far, far away from here. Uh, And we just wanted to come over here and say, we got no problem with you taking over all of these neighboring lands. We know that God gave you this land. We just want you to know we want to be your friends. But it shouldn't interfere with anything because we're from way, way away from here. I mean, it's obvious. And and you read it and it's like they're overplaying their hand. I mean, look how... Our clothes look like this because we've been out in the elements for all this time. And look at our bread. It's moldy because it was months ago when we packed it. We're away from far away from here. So can we have a treaty with you guys? And uh, meanwhile, there are other kings who are gathering their forces and preparing for war. Look at this. Uh, in verse 14, this is what I say, Joshua 10. Uh, Actually, I think, let's pick it up in verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the other congregation swore to them. So they enter into a treaty. So Joshua and Israel were tricked into this treaty And then the other kings in the region, they hear about this and how Gibeon had basically stabbed them in the back. And now they're thinking, Gibeon, a much bigger city than Ai, them and Israel together, they're going to be utterly invincible. So what they decide to do is attack Gibeon separately. Not the Israelites, but a coalition of other city-states are like, well, we'll show them uh, and we'll also give ourselves a better chance of defeating Israel when it's our turn because they won't have Gibeon with them. So they make a plan to attack Gibeon and the Gibeonites run to Joshua saying, help us, you have to help us. We're in a treaty with you guys. Now, Joshua knew at this point, had, knew by this point that he had been tricked. That the Gibeonites were right next door, that he was supposed to take the land of the Gibeonites. But a treaty was a treaty. He was as good as his word. Now, when the Gibeonites came and said, hey, come help us now, these other cities are attacking us, a couple of things could have happened. I think Joshua could have ignored them and said, that's what you get for tricking us. We're not the ones attacking you. We're going to be good to our word. We're not going to attack you. But God looks, look, see what happens. God's going to work his justice anyway. Or... God could have said to Joshua yeah, you're in a treaty you have to help them But I didn't tell you to enter in that treaty That's what you get for not seeking my counsel in the first place. You are on your own But God told them not to fear He said I've delivered them into your hands and not a man of them will stand before you God honored the treaty that Joshua entered into without seeking his counsel So they engaged the enemy and they're killing a lot of the enemy, and then God throws hailstones at the enemy that actually kill more of these uh, cities that are attacking Gibeon than the Israelites are killing with the sword. Everything's going great, except for one thing. There are still a lot of the enemy left, and they are running out of daylight. So now in Joshua 10, uh, chapter 12, uh, if I got the right verse here, did I read the wrong passage earlier? All right, sorry. I read it just from the wrong side. This, uh, so ten, twelve. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ejelon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So it says that Joshua spoke to the Lord, but all it tells us that Joshua said is, sun, stand still, moon, stand still. I don't want to go into the scientific implications of this. It's a miracle. It's a significant miracle. When you think about the laws of physics that have to be suspended in order for this to happen, it makes the parting of the Red Sea look like child's play. But it happened. I just want to ask again, where is the prayer? And here's a question. Did Joshua's command to the sun and the moon count as a prayer? Did Elijah's declaration that it would not rain, and then his declaration, here comes the rain, count as a prayer? It's a possibility. Just consider it for a second. And then look at this in Mark 11. Beginning in verse 12. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, he being Jesus. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is one of those things that I just can't skip over. Every now and then I'm I'm doing a message, and it's about something else, but I come across a passage that bothers me, and I know it bothers you, so I'm going to take just a second to address it all. This little bit that I read here would be so much easier if it just didn't have that phrase, what? Anybody know what what I'm struggling with here? For it was not the season for figs. Jesus sees a tree, a fig tree, with leaves on it from afar off, goes to see if he can find something to eat on it, and finds nothing. For it was not the season for figs. And he curses the tree for not having figs. Does this bother you? <laughs> I mean, what did the poor tree do? Was it the tree's fault? Is that fair to the tree? <sighs> I don't know, so let's move on. No, there have been a, uh, <laughs> there have been a number of explanations for this over the years. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're stealing my sermon. You don't need to say it because I'm going to say it. <laughs> I was kidding when I said I don't know. Some, t- some, some blow it off as a copy error. They're saying Mark put something, or whoever copied this uh, from Mark early on just threw something in there because they didn't understand what was going on. I think we can blow off that, that uh, solution to the problem. Some tie it in with his cleansing of the temple a few verses later, and they make connections between the, the fig tree and Israel's fruitfulness. Now, let me, let me explain something here, or Israel's fruitlessness. Uh, this, it's not just a one answer. Okay, there, are, there are passages in Scripture that have multiple applications, and I think there is something to the connection with Israel's fruitlessness. Others claim, this, seriously, that he was irritable because he was so hungry at the same time that he was entering the city, uh, entering the most stressful week of his life. And therefore, the same irritability is what led him to turn over the tables in the temple and everything else. I think we can rule that out. You know, he spent 40 years without food and water in the desert, and he didn't lose his cool there. Uh, A common explanation is that when the tree was in leaf, certain types of fig trees, uh, it also produced edible buds. They were sort of the precursor to the full fig. Uh, And uh, people would. They would, uh, in in times of hunger, it it was pretty common peasant food. Uh, they could go and just get a handful of these buds and eat them, but even those weren't on the tree. And that, but that there was a, right, uh, a, a uh, legitimate expectation that if there were leaves on the tree, and if the tree was healthy, and if it was going to produce fruit, then it would have these buds. And even that wasn't on there, so Jesus could see this tree is good for nothing. It looks pretty from afar off, but it doesn't have even the fruit that a fig tree should have at this time. Okay, I'd also like to suggest this. Jesus had a lot to say about fruitfulness in other passages of Scripture, didn't he? Every branch that does not bear fruit is cut off, cast into the flames. Uh, and if there's a lesson in here for us, it's, that this, it, it's this, that there is really and this is a harsh thing to say, we all need downtime, we all need times of rest, but there is no season in the life of the believer where it's okay not to bear fruit. Jesus should never find us fruitless, be instant in season and out of season, okay? And it doesn't need to be, we don't need to be at the top of our game doing the greatest things in the world. I'm talking about what Jesus talked about, uh, bear fruits uh, of righteousness and repentance in keeping with these things. Our Christian character is part of the fruit that we bear and we should all, everything we are, whether again, whether we're doing great things at this particular moment, whether we're in a season of rest or not, our lifestyles, our character, our speech should all be Uh, indicative of the fruits in keeping with repentance and righteousness. Okay? Now, I think that's a legitimate explanation. I think the Israel connection and the fruitlessness of Israel is a legitimate explanation. Here's the thing. Jesus himself clearly gives us the main explanation a few verses later. In Mark 11, verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots, and Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Notice that none of the disciples said, why did you curse that poor fig tree? He's getting ready to teach them a valuable lesson, but they didn't say, was that fair to the tree? You know why? Because it's a tree. It's just a tree. All right, he can do that. Even if the tree wasn't supposed to have buds or anything, he can use these things as illustrations because it's just a tree. I'm not going to call anybody a tree hugger if you feel differently. The tree which you curse has withered away. Verse 22, so Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. So we wonder, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Was it because of this? Was it because of that? He said, when they say, look, the fig tree's withered, he says, have faith in God. And immediately, what's he start talking about? Fruitfulness? Israel? No, he starts talking about faith. Starts talking about the word of faith. If you have enough faith, never mind the tree, you can say to a mountain, be, cast into the, uh, be removed and be cast into the sea. Believes, whoever says to this mountain and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, you know, David Beebe was here a few years ago, and he preached out of this passage and said some things that anybody who's been to Rhema uh, has heard a thousand times. Uh, listened to Brother Hagan, Brother Copeland, of many in, in the Word of Faith um, stream. And in this church. And, and there, were, there were many people, when David Beebe preached this, that were like, "Wow, we!" And I realized, I haven't preached that verse in a long, long time. I take it for granted that everybody's heard it a thousand times, and they haven't. But here was the truth that knocked everybody's socks off, and it's just a little bit different emphasis. Don't even have to change the words around. Just maybe move a comma. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Try it this way. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. The whole point being, when do you believe? When you receive or when you pray. When you pray, you believe. And if you believe when you pray, you will have whatever you say. Kenneth Hagin based his whole life in ministry on this passage. This is the word of faith. Speak to your mountain, right? But you see it again. Here's the point I was really trying to make is this. Jesus says to them, if they have faith and if they don't doubt but believe, they can say. Say to the mountain, and they'll have whatever he says. And then he says, after he talks about the power of our words, hey, look, I cursed the fig tree. You noticed it. It worked. And I'm telling you, if you have faith, say to this mountain, and it'll be removed. What what has he said about prayer so far? Nothing. He's talking about faith and speaking. And then the very next thing he says is, uh... Therefore, whatever you ask for when you pray, believe you receive. When you pray, believe you receive and you'll have them. So one more time, where is the prayer? Is speaking to the mountain a form of prayer? Is speaking to the rain a form of prayer? Is speaking to the fig tree a form of prayer? Speaking to the sun and moon? It's possible. But I would rather you consider this explanation. Joshua, Elijah, And Jesus got their marching orders during times of prayer that are implied but not always recorded in Scripture. We do see Elijah in times of prayer, when you read not just the passage we read today, but his whole story. Uh, And we know he heard from God. I think it's quite safe to assume that before we meet him in 1 Kings chapter 17, God had already told him during a time of prayer what to say to King Ahab. He didn't, of his own accord, go up and say that, and then God just decided to go along with it. We know that Jesus prayed often. Explicitly says that he, uh, uh, Jesus explicitly said that he only did what he saw the Father doing and only said what the Father told him to say. Joshua was a man of prayer too, and he had received the word from the Lord when he became the leader of Israel after the death of Moses. And I think the reason his story here is so extraordinary is that the word he had from God was clear, that none of the enemies would remain. It was that promise that Joshua was standing on when he boldly commanded the sun and moon to stand still. And God delighted in making that happen in response to Joshua's boldness. He he, says he heeded the voice of a man, heeded the voice of Joshua. Now, again, we know Joshua was a man of prayer, and it could be. It says that he spoke to the Lord, And right after it says he spoke to the Lord, it says, and he said, but he's not speaking to the Lord. He's speaking to the sun and the moon. I think we're talking about two separate things. He spoke to the Lord, and in this time of conversing with God, God may have told him, you can command the sun and moon to stand still. Doesn't matter. What God did tell him was, What he had already told him was, not a man of them shall escape. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have artificial lighting at all. All Joshua saw was, if we don't have a longer day, we can't kill all these guys. So we need a longer day. The promise he was standing on might not have been specifically, I'll make the sun stop. The promise he was standing on was, none of them shall escape. And so boldly, and God, I imagine, just thought, that is a delightful prayer. He wants every last man, he wants to see every last detail of my promise fulfilled. I'm going to stop the sun for him just because he said that. Now, there's so much more here. We may have to go another week, but I think we can can turn off of this for a little while next week. But, early understanding of faith based on Mark chapter 11 was just that, Jesus said whatever, whatsoever things, right, whatever you say, and you can see how, if you're not careful, things could get way out of hand in a hurry, I mean, people were claiming all sorts of things, some ungodly things, and, and riches beyond your wildest imagination, they said, look, it just says, Say it and believe it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to have it. Uh, but here it is. Every question, every prayer, we need to be asking this question. What are we believing? Not just what are we believing for. You know, that's a, that's a little bit of word of faith ease right there. We don't say, I'm praying for this. I'm asking for this. We say, what? I'm believing for this. Okay. Okay. But to believe for something, you have to point to something objectively that you are believing. I can believe for healing in my body because I have a concrete promise from God that he has provided healing for my body. Right? I can believe for salvation in the moment that I come to faith because somebody shows me in scripture, whoever. Right? Whosoever. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's a promise. I don't have to wonder once I pray that prayer. So we can't just go around saying, I'm believing for a million dollars. I'm believing unless there's a legitimate specific need for a million dollars. Because he said, I'll supply all your need. It must be grounded in the word of God. Every faith-filled declaration has to be grounded in the word of God. Joshua didn't just decide to kill the people in those cities that were attacking the Gibeonites. And isn't it interesting that this miracle of unprecedented and unrepeated scale, that God did that on behalf of Gibeon, a Gentile nation that had deceived his people into this covenant, just because his man Joshua had that kind of standing. Elijah didn't decide or, uh, to cause or declare a drought on his own. God sent him to Ahab with that word. It's still a bold thing. You get a word from God like that, and you're going to stand up and declare it. There will be no rain. For three years, except at my word. Everybody's going to know if you missed it. Jesus, again, Jesus himself only spoke what the Father told him. We are, we are wrapping this up quickly. This is a verse you need to always refer to when you are focusing on Mark 11, 23, and 24. Remember John fifteen seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. This is sort of the control passage. Can you have whatever you pray for? Yes, if you abide in Jesus and his words abide in you. Because then you will only be asking for things that Jesus, that God himself tells you to ask for, tells you you can have, that he in fact gives you the desire for. If we spend time in prayer, if we spend time in the word of God, we will be basing our prayers on what God tells us there. Those are the only prayers where it is possible to not doubt. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. Now, doesn't mean you can't pray for anything else. But if you're going to say, I know, I know, I know I'm going to have this because I have no doubt, the only way that is possible is to be basing it on a specific promise from God that you receive directly from him in prayer or more likely from the written word. Really quickly, 1 John 5, this is my favorite passage on prayer, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So, on one hand, it's saying we can have whatever we ask of him, but it also says that's only true if we're asking according to his will. So, what's the key to getting all your prayers answered to being in perfect faith? Knowing the will of God and praying the will of God. And when I say praying the will of God, well, didn't you just say, well, Thy will be done. Is that praying the will of God? No, because that's not knowing the will of God. It's finding the promises. It's finding his direction and praying those things out. Finally, and really finally, praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. Do your best not to sweat the timeline. I mentioned this two weeks ago. You know, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And it was 24 hours before they saw the results. Daniel prayed and an angel was immediately, this is what I talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, just briefly, an angel was immediately dispatched. The angel came and said, I was dispatched to answer your prayer, to address you the minute you prayed. But it was 21 days before Daniel received the answer because the angel was delayed by opposing spiritual forces. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but not always instantaneously. Here's a story I've told you a couple times, or at least I included it in a newsletter years ago. And I think I've I've told it from here at least once. But I was uh, walking uh, to the office. We lived in Farmer City. And I had a nice little walk from our house uh, to the church. And uh, it was a winter day uh, where it was probably mid-30s. Mid to upper 30s. But we'd had a lot of snow. There was still a lot of snow on the ground. And you, you'd walk over the bridges of these little creeks and you could hear all the snow melt. Uh, just a great, great noise and a perfect day for walking. You didn't really need to bundle up because it wasn't super cold. Uh, but it was still beautiful because there was snow on a lot of stuff. Well, there was this enormous shed, this Quonset hut, you know, rounded shed uh, that was covered with snow. And I was looking at it thinking, man, that just just looks really cool. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the trees. And then I hear a crack, and I turn around just in time to see the entire mass of snow on this Quonset hut just cascade down the side, just avalanche off. In three seconds, it went from being snow-covered to free of snow. So what I want you to understand is that happened... Suddenly. But it didn't happen instantly. You understand? Lightning didn't strike that hut. And free that snow. It wasn't a a laser beam from space. It wasn't an explosion. What it was, was a process. Mostly from the heat inside that building. And a little bit of solar energy that wasn't being reflected by the snow itself. But where the, that frozen bond between that bottom layer of snow that's sticking to that, that cold, cold metal and then everything freezing layer by layer on top of it was binding it, even though that was a totally curved surface and gra- but gravity wasn't enough to break that bond. At the molecular level, as the temperature rose, those molecules start vibrating a little more quickly, a little more quickly, until... That bond is broken. And just that one small layer, never mind anything else that stuck to one another, the small layer of ice that was connected to that metal reached a certain point where it could no longer withstand the pull of gravity. So when it let go, it let go all at once. And our praying and our speaking can be like that. We are struggling with something. We are believing for something. We have a promise. We have a scripture. We have a word from the Lord. And we are standing on it. And we don't see what's happening behind the scenes. We don't see what's happening in the invisible spiritual world. Daniel didn't either. And Daniel is, is, is uh, named in the Bible as one of the three most righteous men who ever lived. And for 21 days he prayed without seeing any hint that God was hearing his prayer. He didn't know until the angel came that that prayer was answered the moment you prayed it. I just couldn't get here till now. What if Daniel had given up on day 20? What are you believing for? Don't believe that just you think, well... Okay, maybe I wouldn't be 100% out of this jam. Maybe I wouldn't be 100% healed, but I would certainly be better by now. No, that snow didn't fall off that building little by little. It stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed until that heat and that melting reached a certain point and it happened all at once. I believe with all my heart, not always, but many times it's that way with our prayers. We might not see improvement for a day, for a week, for a month for a year and then it happens all at once suddenly does not always mean instantaneously thank god for the times it does but let us not be weary in well doing right we will reap in due season if we faint not that goes for our prayers too this is so important to encourage one another with this when you see somebody fighting an extended battle don't do anything to talk them out of continuing to stand in faith. Why don't you just get used to it and thank God for your situation? Maybe this is where God wants you. No, no, no. I am believing with you. I'm continuing to speak God's word over your situation just as much, just as if it were my situation. It needs to be that near and dear to our heart, but we keep doing it. Don't stop praying. I have this, always have this picture of somebody stopping one step away from the answer from the manifestation of that answer. So let's strengthen one another. Let's take strength from the word of God ourselves and keep the faith. Stand up with me. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effectual prayer is one that is rooted in God's word and offered in faith. The fervent prayer is one that is offered with a sense of urgency And is unrelenting. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Well, you know who had an effective prayer life. Elijah. There's a righteous man. What does James say about Elijah? He was a man with a nature just like yours, just like mine. Who's a righteous man? You are. If you are in Christ. The effectual fervent prayer of you. Unless that's not you. Do you want to have an effectual? Do you you want to have prayers that avail much? I do. I don't want to pray just to be praying. I don't want to be praying just as an expression of my Christian discipline. I want my prayers to make a difference. I want your prayers to make a difference. Do you? Man, I know I've gone a little bit long today, but do you want your prayers to make a difference? Yes. So let's pray right, and let's be convinced that we are in a position that we have the same standing as a Joshua, an Elijah, a Moses, an Abraham. And if you don't have that assurance, I'm offering you that assurance today. All you have to do to qualify to be in that category of a righteous man who can offer effectual fervent prayers is to be made righteous by the blood of the cross. That is the only way. You can't get there on your own. You can't make yourself that righteous. You have to understand that The only reason that communication we have with God is broken in the first place is because of sin. And this is why Jesus went to the cross. He died your death, took your judgment, my judgment, spilled his blood to make us righteous. The only claim we have to being that righteous person whose prayers avail much is that we are in Christ. How do you get in Christ? Confession of faith. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does anybody want to make that decision today? I'm going to pray a prayer, and when I'm done praying, they're going to start singing, and I would like you to come up and let me pray that prayer with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the rock that we have to stand on when we are believing for things. Thank you, Lord, that we will abide in you. We are committing to abide in you and let your word abide in us so that we know what to ask for, when to ask for, and we can do it with the confidence that we will have whatever we say. Father, I'm believing now. I believe it because it's your word that says it's the spirit that quickens us, that awakes us, that convicts of sin. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do and what you've promised to do, to convince and awaken today. If there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Lord and Savior, cause them to recognize that they don't, cause them to realize their desperate need to know you like that, and cause them to desire to know you like that today so that they will come to know you as Father, Savior, and Lord today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one,